You start to expect the world to be tuned into your preferences. Mm -hmm. uh, and expect the world to kind of anticipate what you need as an individual. Yeah. Sure, yeah. you get it. And for the most part, the world doesn't really work that way, but, but you're starting to expect it to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so this, you know, the, the hazard there is, is that it reinforces your narcissism. I mean, we're all narcissists to some extent. You have to be. There's no way around it. But this reinforces this sense of your, yourself as the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. um, and and the sense of entitlement that you should get what you expect without having to do any work for it. You're listening to the Vardhan Insider Podcast, a show aiming to uncover the processes, mental models, and tools that go into building mission-critical enterprise business applications. We interview business and technical stakeholders involved in the enterprise application development lifecycle and share the lessons learned from building business applications that run the global economy. In this episode, we have Dan Feldman, who's a senior research fellow at the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dan is also a software engineering executive and advisor to startups with over 40 years of experience developing leading-edge computing systems in a wide variety of industries, including financial services, healthcare, wearable computing, travel, and most recently as the CTO of Touchplan.io, which is a market leader in construction collaboration technology. Dan and I discuss how AI is influencing the software developer experience and overall engineering decision-making process, what happens to our ability to make moral judgments when AI makes an increasing number of complex practical decisions in domains like work retention, credit worthiness, health insurance premiums, etc., and the difference between simply relying on machines versus trusting on AI to get the work done, and more. I hope you enjoy this episode. From your research, how do you see the role of a software developer evolving when more and more AI algorithms are, you know, in production and doing doing a big chunk of the developer's job? Well, I think that that's, you know we have a there's going to be a general trend towards uh, more automation across a variety of industries that haven't historically worried too much about it. So knowledge industries in general have always treated the kind of work that we do as you know, the creative part of the engineering work and other sort of intellectual pursuits and, and one might even say artistic pursuits as, mm -hmm. uh, as uniquely human, as, as something that, that we are able to do and other species and machines can't. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the kinds of tools that are being built um, with what's called AI today, that is to say sophisticated pattern recognizers, start to uh, erode that uniqueness, right? We, we see this transition of some kinds of skills from being only doable by humans to being adequately or even in a superior Better. way doable by machines. Yeah. Um, and that has sort of interesting implications in a variety of places. For developers in particular, I think it's gonna fall into the kind of the general long-term trend of, of reducing the amount of detailed understanding of the computer itself and the amount of detail you have to comprehend in order to get work done. Mm 
that the average programmer uh, has to has to encompass, right? So back in the really early days, there was uh, a debate, you know, and you can go back into the 50s and there was this debate yeah. over, you know, the primitives versus the space cadets is the way it was phrased in one in one paper. And the idea was that there was a as the leading edge of software engineering tools, and it wasn't called software engineering yet, by the way, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be for 10 or 15 more years. Yeah. But the leading edge of, of, of understanding of, of tools that people would use to build systems, we're talking about things like programming languages, right? Mm -hmm. Symbolic programming languages. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, the old guys, the hardcore, were talking about machine language. And well, maybe you could move to assemblers, you know, symbolic assembly, but, yeah. but these highfalutin high-level high languages, that wasn't really programming mm -hmm. uh, anymore, right? And, and in fact, some programming languages like COBOL was explicitly developed as uh, an attempt to re remove the amount of technical knowledge that was necessary so that even a systems analyst could, could write a program. Mm -hmm. uh, and it didn't work out that way, but what, but what the, this, this ongoing drumbeat of applying our own technology to the, to the work we do, right? Automating our work as well as automating other industries and other players' work has done is, is generally to increase software, to, to increase programmer productivity. productivity yeah. and, and one of the big, big things that people have worried about over the years as, think, as particular fields get automated mm -hmm. is that the people who had those jobs before will, will be in the term is de-skilled. Mm -hmm. um, and this is one of the terms that comes up when you when people talk about uh, AI and work, the future of work in general, is mm -hmm. that it will be this progressive de-skilling. So if you were a machinist in you know in the in the aerospace industry in the sixties, yeah. when computer numerically controlled equipment started to you know, milling machines started to come online, yeah. one of the big worries was that oh well the machinists you know these these artisans who have this unique skill set. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. rub their hands against a, a piece of, you know, rub a finger on one side or the other of a piece of metal and tell you within a thousandth whether or not those two sides are parallel, yeah. uh, that that's going to be lost. Mm -hmm. uh, and those guys will just be uh, servicing the machine instead of doing something else that mm -hmm. requires real skill and creativity. Yeah. And, um, and that argument's been applied to programmers as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that, that primitives versus space cadets discourse in the in the 50s was 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 the leading edge of that argument but what i think we've seen in the history of software development and and this is why i'm somewhat sanguine about what happens when we start using ai in software engineering is that is that what it it does in software development is gives us the scope to do even more right? mm -hmm. so it allows us to to not worry too much about certain level of detail that enables us to think about yet another level of abstraction mm -hmm. Yeah, and and so I think they're very powerful. Now, exactly what form that takes, you know, who knows? You know, automatically picking a design pattern for you, maybe because yeah. they're all kind of pattern recognition, um, yeah. you know, or recognizing that you're using a set of UI components and and being able to predict what the the right component is for the thing you're coding now, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I I think people would see those as enormous accelerators, not yeah. as threats to their livelihood. And I don't see anything sort of ethically problematic with that at all. I think that's a good use of automation. Yeah, no, that is interesting. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's about, you know, increasing productivity of the, you know, workforce. 
and uh, most of the times we our media and pop culture tends to make us focus on you know we will lose these jobs and one of the uh, great examples I know of is ATM machines when they came out everybody was like bank tellers will be obsolete but ATM tellers actually helped triple the productivity and you know increase the market cap of banks um, so software developers they they tend to still shun down the idea that no machines cannot do what I do so if you could look at this whole spectrum of the different areas that developers focus on and you you know give some examples right maybe someday they won't have to choose any design pattern it just auto generates what are the what are the what are the areas the functions that have that you have seen in your you know in your past decades of careers that has been automated and becoming better and better and what are those where you see it's going to be really challenging for ai algorithms to automate and that's where the developers can really have their unique you know value proposition or be irreplaceable by focusing their strengths towards those categories well, I think uh, a couple of different ways to answer that. Um, one is that anything that's sort of routine and rote, we've audit, we've started to automate, right? So sure. back back in the old days, you know, if you if you wanted to know what the prototype for a particular function was, mm -hmm. uh, you had to go look it up. We had manuals for those things. Um, yeah, you know, tree yeah. <laughs> you know, manuals. And and now you start typing the name of the function, and the prototype pops up in your IDE, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you if you know you're building a particular kind of app, and there's a, a lot of essentially boilerplate construction that has to get done around it. So you go into Visual Studio and you wanna you wanna build a uh, a rich UI runs you know natively on Windows app. You click a button and 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 you can do this next code as well. Right? It doesn't matter what the tool is. That the mm -hmm. The underlying stuff you need to have a functioning okay. app is already there and wired, and you're filling in yeah. a skeleton. So. Uh, I think we'll just see uh, more and more of that, you know, tools that are better and that are better able to anticipate what we want to do and, and more sort of eliding of these, of these tedious tasks mm -hmm. uh, to a button that you click. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing I think is important uh, is to, is to, you know, kind of be clear about where the boundaries are here when we talk about AI. Mm -hmm. So if you go back, to the mid '50s, there was uh, the AI got got coined at a summer research conference that was hosted at Dartmouth by guys like McCarthy and Minsky and Shannon. Mm -hmm. That was about establishing the boundaries of the field fundamentally. Mm -hmm. and what is this thing we're doing, and, and and why don't we call it artificial intelligence? Mm -hmm. And you can find the paper online, the the proposal for it, both the original okay. proposal and what originally got done. It, it's 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 worth the read. And they lay out actually a pretty rich agenda of, mm -hmm. of things that are worth researching before you could start talking about what it means to have an intelligent machine. So things mm -hmm. like learning and mm -hmm. planning and language processing and the ability to navigate in a space, for instance, if you're talking about robotics. And, and throughout the history of AI as a, as a research field, you've seen people spending time and energy on this full rich agenda. And what's mm -hmm. happened in the last 10 years, because of the success specifically of um, multiple hidden layer neural networks, mm -hmm. uh, is that, which are called deep learning, right? Is that this one, this one field of subfield of AI has mm -hmm. uh, gotten enormous prominence because it works pretty well for a wide variety of tests. 
Yeah. And that that's the statistical machine learning space, right? So mm -hmm. you have AI as a whole. Within AI, you have learning. Within learning. learning, you have statistical machine learning. Within statistical machine learning, you have neural networks. Within neural yeah. networks, you have multiple hidden layer AI, yeah. you know, IE deep networks. And so we've sort of telescoped this whole field down to this one set of techniques, right? Of, yeah. of, of these of these uh, deep deep learning networks, mm -hmm. and you know they're interesting and they're useful, and they and we've seen a tremendous amount out of them. My expectation is that what we'll be able to do with them is going to plateau, and the speed with which we'll see innovation around deep networks will be slowed down substantially. Mm -hmm. um, one of the reasons is because although their base neural networks in general are based on a model of neurons in human brains, mm -hmm. they're not exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and one of the reasons they took so long to develop was because you had to wait for the computer power to show up. Right? It wasn't yeah. until you know 2000, yeah. 2010 that you had enough compute. GPU um, and computing, yeah. You didn't even need. I mean, you, you, GPU computing helps with training, but in general, just yeah. to, just to have you know even to even to to do the inference to run the model was extremely <laughs> expensive, and now it's yeah. dirt cheap. But if you believe, as I do, that we're essentially at the end of the scaling laws on semiconductor technology, yeah. flat scaling is done, not much to be squeezed out of silicon. We get a little higher density, yeah. right? There'll be a couple more nodes in the silicon roadmap. Yeah. Uh, but you know, these chips are really dense. They're you know, people can't get uh, get enough signals on and off the chip, um, <laughs> which is one reason why some people are working on very large chips. Mm -hmm. uh, and and they're not going substantially faster, and they're not being more power efficient. So, so if you know the kind of breakthroughs that require advances in hardware can't happen mm -hmm. okay. because of you know the advances are pretty much gone. Yeah. Right. Then you know maybe we're we're going to see a plateau in what these capabilities are for a while. You know, mm -hmm. I'll note that you know. The, the heavily machine learning based approaches that have been embedded in the autonomous driving problem, which is a much more complex problem than most machine learning problems, right? Because it doesn't include things like planning and the changes in the environment. You know, there, there are probably tens of billions of dollars sunk into that. And we still don't have autonomous vehicles on the road, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, these are, these are very hard problems. So, you know, I think that that there will be limits to what the tools can do for us for a while. And again, so that's why I'm sort of sanguine that, you know, I don't think programmers are going the way of the dodo. But every, every, every time there's been a significant advance in programming technology, yeah. people have kind of wrung their hands about this and it's yeah. worked out exactly the opposite way, right? Do you see less yeah. demand for information technology in our culture yeah. <laughs> or our economy? So here's an interesting um, uh, people-related question. As uh, more and more of the mundane tasks gets automated, people are still used to, you know, people resist, the brain resists change, and they have they've had a specific way to do a workflow. And then when you have this uh, automated tools or you know AI helping make the job better, who is responsible for at in the at the enterprise level to retrain or educate the folks because my conversation has been with you know folks who grew up in the legacy systems uh, they don't have any devops cd cycle and they are just doing you know it's a lot of inefficiencies and and from a business standpoint i can see it but the developers they're resisting to the the newness and the evolution that has happened so who is responsible for that uh 
Well, I, I think it's, it's important for us to be clear about who's, whose interests are what. Yeah, okay. Our own interests are, excuse me a second. Yeah. Whose interests are what? That's yeah, so the, so the corporation has a specific set of interests and they may include wanting to move the state of the art forward in their own organization. Mm -hmm. the, and, and they may, as a matter of enlightened self-interest, say it's probably less expensive for me to help these uh, contributors who have stood by the company, perhaps, and, you know, been, yeah. been loyal and, and asked, done what we asked and done it in a craftsmanlike way and been responsible. And it may be in my interest as a corporation to, to help them make that step, right? Is it the corporation's responsibility? Well, you know, in the hyper-capitalist world we live in today that, you know, most corporations would say no, you know, that that's, that's your, your responsibility as a professional. And that gets into a whole side question about, well, are we professionals and what is professionalism, right? Yeah. It's, it is a, they could take the position and I think, you know, not be shunned as, as somehow immoral or even amoral for that, that, you know, the, it's a rapidly changing field. It always has been. It, it likely always will be. And if you want to be current, you have to make an investment uh, at, in, your, in yourself to be current. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's always been my point of view for myself. Now, I've never, uh, frankly, I've never worked anywhere more than five and a half years, right? So if I, if I, if I had to be, uh, you know, if I had, if I had been embedded in a corporate environment for, for 10, 15, 20 years, um, yeah. I was comfortable and not really working all that hard and it was easy for me, you know, would I, would I resist? Yeah, I might, uh, you know, would I mind comfortable and easy and not all that hard? Yeah. Now I would. Yeah. I wouldn't mind so much, but that's not the way that I ran my career. Yeah. So, I mean, re reinventing ourselves, I think it, it falls under the shoulders of uh, the individuals, the, you know, the workforce. What were you referring to when you said, are we professional? Ah, well, so there's this interesting history of professionalism and professionalization in engineering. It goes back to the mid-19th century when, the, when the, the original engineering societies, the American uh, Society of Mechanical Engineers and the, um, the predecessor of the IEEE and the Civil Engineering Organization were formed. And that was at the same time that, for instance, medicine was becoming professionalized. And professionalization has generally meant educational standards and licensure and continuous, continuous professional development. And, and licensure has meant being able to demonstrate. So you were taught a body of knowledge. And at the licensing, you can demonstrate that you mastered a body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And through ongoing training, you can demonstrate that you're keeping okay. up with the state of the art around your body of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. and, and programming has never had that. And software engineering has certainly never had that, although there have been attempts. And one of the big kind of struggles with the Association for Computing Machinery, for instance, is to appeal to the practitioner and sort of help them have this professional identity but you don't have to, you can, anybody can call themselves a software engineer. You know, exactly. not anybody can call themselves a doctor. You know, it's illegal to call yourself a doctor. And it's illegal in many states to call yourself a professional engineer. And that's yeah. a specific, you know, licensed designation unless you have actually been licensed. And, but anybody can call themselves a professional, uh, a professional software engineer. And nobody yeah. runs twice, right? And, and in fact, you know, the history of the field is that that people came to it. Some of the most creative and impactful people came to it from someplace else. 
Mm -hmm. it, was, it was only in the you know mid to late 70s, which seems like ages ago now, but but you know it was already 30 years since the first practical electronic digital computers mm -hmm. before before the academic discipline of computer science really stabilized. And you started having independent academic departments called computer science departments. Yeah. So when I went to Brandeis in the, in the mid to late 70s, yeah. uh, they had a bachelor's degree in computer science, but the program was part of the physics department. Physics department. Mm -hmm. um, and that wasn't that uncommon then, uh, yeah. that it was under math or it was under physics or it was under some other engineering discipline. Mm -hmm. so, so we don't really have this idea that there that you know when somebody says they're a software engineer you know exactly what that means mm -hmm. um you know we don't have medical equipment yeah, right? there's no licensure but yeah there's no licensure so that yeah. the closest i think i've seen recently I, I wondered about this when i saw it happening was is you know google has a, a reputation for having a fairly rigorous technical interview when you go to apply for a job there and people started publishing books i remember there's one called the, referred to as the green book that sort of started how to ace your google technical interview yeah. and it's a compendium of technical knowledge and in some sense you know if you can consume and use the material in that book it's sort of de facto functioning as a certification mm -hmm. now nobody's willing to say we need to organize the industry that way or ourselves yeah. that way right yeah. um and you get this other, you know, the other dichotomy you get is between professionalization and, and unionization, right? So, so less skilled, but not necessarily unskilled labor, not professionals though, who bargain from a position of strength by, by unionizing versus the professional who bargains from a position of strength by controlling admission to the field and thereby controlling the supply of his expertise. Mm -hmm. Right. One of the effects of, of licensing is right. that is that it keeps people from from just setting up shop and calling themselves a doctor, yeah. which means doctors get paid more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and for lawyers and for professional engineers and you know. I guess I guess you can say that you know like I just something realized that deep learning engineer that is kind of acting as like a licensure. You know, if you can say you're a deep learning engineer and and your value goes well, up in the marketplace, just more well, skills. But it's not, but nobody's validating that, right? There's no independent yeah, there's no argument independent. saying, oh, yes, you know, there is in fact what he says he is, right? He, <laughs> it's just you're claiming it. And yeah, you can claim it without right? any. And, and you can claim almost anything. So, it, you know, at that point, it's, you know, it's up to the hiring organization, for instance, to say, okay, mm -hmm. well, how am I going to assess this? Or do I just take a chance? And, and that's why our hiring practices are the way they are. And, and fundamentally, they're flawed in a lot of ways. You know, does life, does passing the bar make you a good lawyer? No, but it, says that you have the minimum qualifications to call yourself a lawyer. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so uh, this is a good segue to the another ethics side of the research that you guys do at the AI Ethics Lab. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, you know, AI and ethics? How, what sort of research yeah. are you guys doing? Yeah. Yeah. So let me tell you what we're not doing because it's the thing that other folks are doing and that people often think about. So there's a, there's a kind of ethics called normative ethics, right? Which is the good and bad, what's right, what's wrong. And that's where you get things like the trolley problem, right? Here you are, you could let the trolley go and it's going to, you know, wipe out a family of four. But if you throw the switch, it's going to kill the fat guy down the track. So the difference is, do you do nothing or do you throw the switch? How do you make that decision, right? Those kinds of problems that certain kinds of ethicists love to 
love to argue about. And, and we're actually interested in something else, which is more what philosophers refer to as phenomenology. So it's about, you know, how it is and the experience of being human. And what does it mean to be human uh, in a world with artificial intelligence? And what changes because of it? And so some of the things that we talk about are things like, so our algorithms are really good at pattern recognition. A very common pattern for them to be asked to recognize is your preferences. Mm -hmm. um, recommender engines, that's what they do, right? They try to recognize what your preferences are, make a recommendation that's either, it's, it's relatively binary choice, right? Yes, this is something mm -hmm. Anchor is going to like, and this is not something we think Anchor is going to like, and it will present him with these other things. Yeah. Uh, and and as a result of that, for instance, one could argue, and this is a position that you know that my colleague there and I play with, is that that you you get very used to that. You you start to expect the world to be tuned into your preferences, mm -hmm. uh, and expect the world to kind of anticipate what you need as an individual. Yeah. Sure, yeah. you get, and. For the most part, the world doesn't really work that way, but but you're starting to expect it to. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so this, you know, the, the hazard there is is that it reinforces your narcissism. I mean, we're all narcissists to some extent. You have to be. There's no way around it. But this reinforces this sense of your yourself as the center of the universe, mm -hmm. um, and and the sense of entitlement that you should get what you expect without having to do any work for it. So that's kind of one kind of thing that we talk about. Another kind of thing is. These algorithms are getting applied to more and more of the kinds of middle management level judgments that mm -hmm. uh, that that historically have been human judgments. Human, like work retention, creditworthiness, health insurance. Exactly. You know, yeah. Creditworthiness, hiring and firing, where do you deploy the police? Is this person eligible for parole? What should the sentencing be? You know, and, and they're right, they're all over the place. And and there's a school of thought that goes back to Aristotle that says that. The way you become good at making judgments, practical judgments, mm. is by actually making them. You have to practice, right? Yeah. And you have, to, you have to make mistakes and you have to learn from your mistakes. And, and if we stop having those opportunities, mm -hmm. it, it, and so, so a way to understand that is if you stop having those opportunities, then we literally become demoralized. We no longer have a way to be moral. Mm. And, and so my, my excessively trite uh, combination of those two ideas is that, you know, at the end of the day, do we end up, ask the question, at the end of the day, do we end up being amoral narcissists because of the deployment of this technology? And is that how we want to be as humans, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> so I'm not taking a position on, on you know, yeah, I mean, good or bad or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. There's a risk here that goes beyond, you know, is it fair and safe? which is the kind of thing people tend to focus on. Yeah. Right? Right. There's a lot of concern about, are these algorithms fair? Have they embedded the biases of the person who trained the model? You know, and the kinds of stuff that Kathy O'Neill talks about in Weapons of Math Destruction, which if you haven't read, you should. It's an easy read. Uh, and it goes into those kinds of issues in, 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 in really accessible detail. Mm -hmm. But... But there is another set of issues which have to do with what's it like to be a human in these circumstances. So you can take the recommender thing and you can go another step and say, you know, one of the kind of richest experiences we can have as creative human beings is this thing we call serendipity, is the idea that, you know, unexpectedly, but because you're on the ball somehow, unexpectedly, yeah. you make a connection that turns out to be extremely productive for you. It, it's beyond chance. It's not mere chance, mm -hmm. right? 
Uh, and, ask, and it raises some interesting questions, I think, about fate, but and the idea of fate. But but what happens to serendipity? You know, does it disappear if the recommender engines are always making sure you see what you want to see and you're no longer you, know, you go into a, a traditional bookstore or a library with open stacks, and you go find the thing you were looking for. But if you're anything like me, you also look at the books all around you, and say, oh, hey, that one looks interesting. I wonder if there's something useful there. You wouldn't have searched for it. Mm -hmm. um, and it might not even be particularly obviously related to the thing you're looking at. You know, go around the corner in the stacks and you're somewhere else altogether. And it's really hard for these recommendation engines to do that for you. I mean, they can do some kind of simulation by throwing in some randomness, right? And say, oh, we'll deliberately choose something that we know is not meeting the profile and see what happens. And we try to do some unsupervised learning around that. Mm -hmm. um, but is it really the same? Do we lose the opportunity for serendipity in this world? Is that something we're giving up? And is that still at the philosophical uh, level or have you guys come to some some conclusions what what the future is in store? Well, anybody who predicts the future is bound to be wrong. Right? <laughs> yeah. I would do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting on, on the on the on the topic of you know uh, feeding our own inner narcissist. It's interesting because you know the Gen Zers who are growing up in tech and and social media there's a good correlation between the rise of mental health crisis among them. You know, again, the cause and effect can be, you know, debatable. Oh, but not right? Exactly. There's so many other variables out there. And, and, and the human brain is so interesting, right? We are the only mammal or folks who have prefrontal cortex. You know, we can think. Interestingly, AI is making us dumber, but because they don't want us to think. They don't want to have us to have to think about decisions like, uh, how do I get there? Oh, just Google Maps will take you there or, you know. Just, uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's another another example of a place where you lose serendipity too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finding, finding something you didn't <laughs> know. Like, by accident. You can't get lost, yeah. You said, I, I, I think I'll, uh, I'll, go, I'll take the scenic route today. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly when we all get trained to, you know, optimize for, for, for the length of the trip, right? The default with Google is it's going to take you on the, quickest route yeah that's where you stop well that's where you stop you don't get to see all that other stuff you're on the highway mm. so what's the i mean what's the difference uh, between simply relying on machines versus trusting on ai to get the job done while preserving the human experience yeah actually the scholar i know who's who's sort of asked that question has turned has used those terms in exactly the opposite way you do which is to say a machine is trustworthy if it does what you expect it to do Mm -hmm. Right? Is it reliable though? Will it, mm -hmm. you know, will it always be there for you doing what you expect it to do? I don't have any good answers. Inter to interesting, yeah. Play of words there, yeah. It's, uh, it's. I have to figure out what your definitions are, but yeah. And I don't think he's written anything on this yet, but he talks about it. He's a he's a colleague at uh, the University of Massachusetts at Boston. Yeah. He's been thinking about these things. And on on the ethics uh, of so for example talking about those use cases you mentioned you know the middle 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 management levels the the develop the engineers who are writing those ai algorithms how do we account for their biases that is feeding these algorithms which ends up literally i got denied credit because my credit score was bad because of something because the bank just focuses on transunion as the de facto yeah. whereas my other two the companies yeah, are really high. so so the developers who are writing this, how do we check in their personal biases? Because that might feed into the algorithm that ends up impacting the masses. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's an interesting question, and there are a couple of different ways people are trying to answer it. One is to, you know, first acknowledge that we all have biases. And, but beyond that, you know, the, the biases get embedded in these algorithms, in machine learning algorithms in particular in a couple of ways, one having to do with what you pick for training sets, and the other having to do what you pick for test sets. And, and so there's a uh, professional responsibility to do that in a thoughtful way and to recognize the biases. And our, our belief is that over time, you know, people are focused on this problem and these are essentially technical problems and they'll work themselves out. They'll, they will be solved. There will be criteria for saying whether or not any particular algorithm seems to be fair or biased in some way or in some other way dangerous. There are some who argue that these systems have such an impact and are so pervasive that particularly emerging systems that they ought to be treated with a regulatory regime, that there ought to be a government agency, basically, that certifies the fairness of algorithms, mm -hmm. uh, the correctness of them, that they're functioning correctly, which should go beyond the, right now, this snapshot, does this algorithm function correctly, but to the other parts of the system that is presumed in a good machine learning implement, implementation, which is that you're actually measuring how successful you are at doing the pattern matching you're trying to do, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, clustering or regression or, yeah, sorry, brain, brain fault. But you, you need to feed back data into a machine learning algorithm. Mm -hmm. it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be continuously executing as if it hadn't ever seen new data and found new corrections. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would be part of a, could be part of a regulatory regime. So that this idea of how you do governance is an area, it's not one that we're working on particularly, but it is an area that's, that's getting a fair amount of research right now. Mm -hmm. Slightly tangent, kind of going back to the whole software development, uh, you know, life cycle. Which aspect do you think it'll be very hard for AI to replace? Uh, and I'm, I'm speaking from my my function, you know, and business development, empathy, communication. You know, the Turing test is still out there, and and people are forecasting or saying that it'll take a while while AI replaces, you know, a sales rep and and they will do the job and, and they are setting meetings for now in the software development life cycle. What are the, some functions that you think is pretty uh, difficult for AI to replace or, or maybe it, it will happen someday? Oh, well, I think it will happen incrementally as the tools get more sophisticated and people figure out how to, how to uh, wire the tools together to get, you know, a more complete simulation of the programming problem. You know, going back to what I said earlier, I think what you'll see is, is that less of the things that are routine and mundane get done by the human and you get more abstract more. concerns that we yeah. can do. And, and I think ultimately that turns into being able to do more, right? Have more impact. So, so it, it, you know, it's, it's the amount, there, this, there's an old fashioned measure of programmer productivity that is thousand lines of code, right? K-lock. Thousands of lines of code per day, hour, year, whatever it is, whatever your, your denominator is, right? So it says, but, and, and basically we, we as humans can do, you know, X, whatever that is, you know, over unit time. And that's why high level programming languages that abstract more and more allow mm -hmm. you to do more because you're never going to do a whole lot more than that amount of work, whoever you mm -hmm. are, right? You know, some people can do a lot and some people can't do as much. Yeah. Um, you're never going to do more than that amount of work. The question is, for each line of code, how much do you get out of it? And I think so. I think one of the things that these tools give you is a way to 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 write things in a way that leaves more of the work 
to the machine. And as a consequence, you know, the, the bytes of, of machine code that come out from a line of Java are substantially different than the bytes of machine code that come out from a line of assembler or even Fortran. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if you go to the next level and you say, well, if I'm in, in this application building environment and I write a line of code and you say, well, what does that translate to in, in let's assume reasonably well-optimized bytes of machine code, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not just garbage. Then you'll see that growing over, you'll continue to see that growing over time. Mm-hmm. So that forces us into you know, higher levels of abstraction and, and more of what I think of as the creative work of, of software engineering, you know, imagining this thing, figuring out what the big parts are and how they should be glued together and how do they talk yeah. to each other. I mean, not worry too much about the details of how do I serialize and deserialize this structure. Yeah. So some school of thoughts have talked about, mentioned that we are all living in a simulation. What are your thoughts on that? How would you know? <laughs> it's, it's kind of like the, the, the free will problem, right? The <laughs> free will problem? Well, the... I mean, do you have free will? How do you know? I mean, uh, it, you know, we're all reducible to, to you know, atomic particles that, that behave in a moral, at least statistically predictable way. And so if you had a big enough machine, could you simulate what it means to be a human? And that's, you know, that's the thing that, that might start to look like artificial general intelligence, but we're nowhere near it. So when a artificial general intelligence, which is when humans, uh, machines think like, or better than humans, right? Well, yeah, I try to make a distinction between artificial general intelligence, which is to say that that a machine that's capable of performing as well as humans on the full range of cognitive tasks that humans engage in. Mm -hmm. And then there's this idea of super intelligence, which is that the machine is better at a substantial Mm -hmm. body of tasks that normally we think of as cognition. Now, Mm -hmm. the point is that all of our tools make us superhuman. You know, a guy Mm -hmm. with a hammer is superhuman at driving me compared to a guy without so, uh, and, and, and the kinds of benchmarks that the community has put in place over the years, uh, and journalists love, like being able to play chess as well as a grandmaster, or being able to beat a world champion goal player. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these have been built around games because we've looked at games as uniquely human cognitive activities. And it's clear that the machines these days can far outperform any chess, human chess player. Yeah. You know, nobody's nobody's asking that question anymore, and they can do pretty well against human Jeopardy players, uh, mm-hmm. even though that's a pretty hard problem. And yet, that's all they are, right? Nobody's actually put it together in a way that that makes it more than a tool. Mm-hmm. And I think we're a long ways away from doing that. And the reason I think that is because of this these underlying trends in in silicon. You know, I think mm-hmm. if yeah, if the hardware was still on an exponential growth and efficiency path. So one way to think about it is that computers today are um, for the same dollars are 10 million times more than computers in the mid 70s. Mm-hmm. You get 10 million times more compute for your dollar. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think about my first car in the mid 70s and it was an OK car, but it was just an OK. Car. It was a pretty average car. Yeah. Uh, and the average car in the mid 70s uh, dollar adjusted basis costs about what the average car today, you know, inflation adjusted, right? Constant, mm-hmm. constant dollars. The average car today costs about what the average car cost in 1975. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and you know what? 
they're still pretty average. Now, they're way better than they were in 1975. They're far more reliable. They have a ton of electronics in them. They're more comfortable. They're way safer, right? But at the end, you know, they're lighter. They're more fuel efficient, but they're not 10 million times better at anything. Mm -hmm. They're still just a pretty average car. Yeah. And you can look at all of human technology and, and say pretty much the same thing. We've been in a, it, we've been in a remarkable phase since roughly 1948 and, and, you know, the, the electronic digital computers, first with vacuum tubes and then with transistors, we've been in, in, in a, a remarkably fertile period of innovation and, and, and growth in effective use of resources yeah. that I suspect strongly is coming to an end. And this stuff's all going to plateau, I believe. And I, you know, I feel kind of lucky to have been writing this particular yeah. curve for my yeah. entire career, right? So 40 yeah. years into this, you know, if I get out at 50, maybe, maybe my timing's perfect, but. <laughs> yeah. No, that'll be interesting what the, the intels are researching, you know, if, if we are predicting or seeing the plateau, you know. Oh yeah, then you can, and if you just go do a, do a, yeah. you know, Moore's Law search on the, uh, you know, ask, ask the Google to tell you and it'll, it'll yeah. give you plenty of evidence. Yeah. Uh, the breakthroughs are going to come in uh, to some degree in novel architectures, things that we have together in different ways, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, the work's been essentially abandoned, but it's the kind of work that Hewlett Packard Enterprise was doing with the machine project, mm -hmm. which I was lucky enough to work on for a while. And, and then you have to look at, you know, really breakthrough technologies um, like quantum computing and optical computing and biological computing. And those things are really far away from practical commercial scale devices. Yeah. Um, and that's a wrap up for this episode if you're interested to be a guest in the show or you have topics you would like to learn more about related to enterprise application development find us at vadin.com slash podcast mm -hmm.